book of Hebrews, and this morning we're in a portion of chapter 2. So the book of Hebrews chapter 2. What we're going to be focusing on this morning, we covered this chapter in its entirety on Wednesday night. So if you want to get a, a full context of what it is, just tune into that video. Um, or just tune into the website and you can get an MP3. But this morning I want to zero in, I want to focus on verse 9. And there, there's a point that I think sometimes with who we are and how we are, it's important to understand, um, like we looked at last week with that whole issue of sonship and the doctrine of sonship, there's another doctrine that comes out here in verse 9. It simply declares this, but we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now I want to initially focus on this last part of this verse where it says that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Why do I want to focus on this? Well, there's two schools of thought within the Christian church. There's the, with the idea of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That one, there is a, 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 a direction within the reform or the Calvinist aspect of a limited view of atonement. That there are only certain ones, only the elect that, that he dies for. And then there's this view of the unlimited atonement where it says here in this verse that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Not, not simply for the elect. He wouldn't taste death for the elect, but he would taste death for everyone. And so this passage here will make the case for the latter. Now, why is it important? Why is it that, you know, we're, we're here and we're looking at Well, first and foremost, I do want to make a declaration that, that those who are in that understanding and, and lean towards that view of limited atonement and those who lean towards the view of unlimited atonement, that they are Christians. They are Christians. They're going to go to heaven. Regardless of which view you take, they are Christians, they are saved, and they're going to go to heaven. Now, why then do we focus on this? Why then do we look to this? Well, we look to this because a lot of what happens is, is the view that you take is going to be a view to how you look at others. Do you look at someone and saying, well, you know what, you're not the elect. I don't need to say anything to you because if you were the elect, well, you'd already be in the church. Or do you look to someone to say, you know what, um, I, I want to give you this word to say Jesus died for your sins. That if you accept him and you receive him, well, if they're not the elect, it's like, I'm not going to tell you he died for your sins. I know he died for mine. Too bad for you. So what do you look to and how do you deal with it? Now, keep in mind that, that my, my heart today is not to mock any side. My heart today is simply bring scripture. To bring scripture to, to look to this point to say, you know, who did Jesus die for? And as we look to this, we see here at the last part of the Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says that he, by the grace of God, it talks about the grace of God. Now, when you think about the grace of God and you think about this idea of limited atonement, 
in, in my mind, the word limited and God just don't go hand in hand. God is, is bigger than all this. But when we take a look at this, it says that he, by the grace of God, it's God's grace, God's grace, that he might taste death for everyone. So some of your Bibles will say that he might taste death for every man. Some will say that he might taste death for all. And, and that's what the, this is declared. Now, I do want to make a statement, and, and I want you to be very clear on this, and it's not in any way mocking any view that someone would have, that what the book of Hebrews does do is it does make a case for limited atonement. Now, you're saying, wait, Lo, what did you just say, and how are you now just saying something else? It does make a case for limited atonement. What am I saying? Well, the atoning work of Jesus Christ does not do anything for the angels. does everything for man, but it doesn't do anything for the angels. We see here the angels cannot receive this work of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ became like his brethren. And so when this whole context of what Hebrews is saying is just how much better Jesus is than the angels. And so through this, the angels have no atonement. We as men, we have atonement. And so as we look to this, keep in mind that what we're seeing here is that God here is going to, has initially put everything under subjection under Adam. Everything was there for Adam. And what Jesus does is in his atoning, he brings everything back in subjection to God. He redeems it all, not, not some, not part. He redeems it all. And so I want you to understand that what we're seeing in here is this evidence that Jesus is so superior over the angels. And in this section, what it does is it just adds greater evidence that Jesus is superior over the angels. As we look to this, I want to share with you just uh, an initial point of understanding where it says here in Hebrews 9 or Hebrews 2 verse 9 that he might taste death for everyone. The term being he might test, taste death for all. Why am I going to focus on that? Well, there's a couple of verses that I want you to just simply look at or jot it down. If you don't want to turn there, you can simply look at them. The first is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Now, we've been dealing with Romans 5 for the last couple of weeks as we're looking at references. But I do want you to see here how important it is that in Romans 5, verse 18, this word all is going to come. The same word that's used here, that he might taste death for all or for everyone. The same word is used in Romans 5, verse 18. And Romans 5, 18 says this. Just, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. What happens is this, because of Adam and Adam's sin, every single man now has this sin nature. Every single man is now separated from God. Whether you sin or not, openly, you already have a sin nature, so you are born separated for God, which, from God, which is why the scripture talks about you have to be reborn. You have to be born again. You have to be born not only of the flesh, which is of the water, but you have to be born of the spirit. You've got to now connect with God. And so he says in verse 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation 
Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Why is that important? That means that you and I can go to anyone in the world and say this, God has offered to you this gift. God has given to you this gift. And if you want, come and receive this gift. If you desire, come and receive this gift. This is where the heart is. There's another passage found in 1 Timothy. And I want to read two verses in 1 Timothy. The first verse I want to read is chapter 2, verse 4. And then I'm going to read chapter 4, verse 10. Let me simply read those two verses to you. In 1 Timothy 2, 4, it makes this statement. Speaking of, of, you know, God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. That word all is the same word that we're finding here in in Hebrews 2.9. He wants all men to be saved. He wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, I told you I would read that one as well. It declares this. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. And then it says, especially of those who believe. Now, this one blows our mind. When we see here that here, as Paul is writing to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach where we're moving forward and we're trying to let this word in. So we're suffering reproach because of this, because we trust that the living God, the God who is alive forever and ever, who is the Savior of all men. See, God is the Savior of all men. And then it says this, especially of those who believe. Now, he is the Savior of all men, But the ones who've received this gift, the one who's accepted this gift, especially to them. Now, to the the condemnation of the ones who says, I don't want this work, I don't want this gift. Well, then he is still your savior. You just haven't received the gift. And so because you haven't received this gift, you are eternally damned. It's not because God didn't love you, that God didn't want you, that God didn't offer you this gift. It's that you rejected the gift. And so we begin to see here, and I think it's so important for us in how we look at the world and how we want to tell the world, God loves you. See, if you don't believe that there's an unconditional love of God, then it's going to be what? Well, God loves me. (laughs) Sorry about you, but I know he loves me. And I think it's important for us to really grab a hold of this. Now, we did do the study if you, you know, tune in to um, go into the website, go back to Obadiah, where we looked at that one passage where we, we looked at, you know, on Mount Zion, there's going to be deliverance. We call it on Mount Zion, there's going to be deliverance because that's what the scripture said. But you, if we could have in parentheses, we could have put in that scripture, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And we look to what it was that, that caused God to, to draw to Jacob. 
And it wasn't anything of Jacob's goodness. He was, he was as sinful, even more so, what Scripture says, than what Esau was. But yet he had a desire for the spiritual. And so God just, just washed him with it and poured more and more on top of what he desired. And all you need is just an inkling of a desire for the spiritual. And God says, and I'm gonna, if you have this smoking flask, I'm going to breathe on it and I'm going to ignite it into a flame. This is God. Why? Because he desires that all men be saved, and all come to the knowledge. And so when we're thinking this, I think it's important to realize here how much God loves and where his, his love is unconditional to the world. His work is conditional to those that receive it, but his love itself and this atonement of Jesus Christ that he tasted death for everyone. He tasted death for all. He tasted death for all men. And so Keep in mind that as we, we look to this, here's Jesus Christ. He has this work where when Adam sinned and thus death, death came to all men, what, what Peter says is this. In his epistle, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he says that the death of Jesus Christ was the just for the unjust. So what does that mean? It means that every single one of us were the unjust. It doesn't mean that he was, his, his death was the just for the elect. It was the death for the just to the unjust. See, God loves the world. He so loved the world. And if you are familiar with that passage there in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verse 34, where Jesus comes and he's there overlooking Jerusalem. And as he's overlooking Jerusalem, what happens in this passage is this, that Jesus goes and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Do you understand what scripture says? God desires but there were some who just weren't willing. God said, I want to take all of Jerusalem and just love on them. I wanted to gather them all as a hen would gather them under. But you weren't willing. Now, when you take a look at what Jesus is saying, he didn't say, listen, I've just come for the elect. The rest of you, sorry. And I didn't come. You know, he said, no, I came for all of you. And as he does so, I think it's important to realize just how much God loves. And so within that, I do want to share with you, and you know this passage, everyone should at least have it, and anyone who says, I can't memorize scripture, you're probably wrong. Because if I say John 3, 16, you're all going to say, oh yeah, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That tells me what? You can memorize scripture. It just means that you aren't trying hard for the other ones. But we see here, and what it declares is this, and I want to read verse 16 and 17 because they, they do follow each other, and there's a greater context to it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So he says, I love the world that whoever in the world believes in him, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is the heart of God. He wants to see the world saved. Now, 
What I'm going to do is this. I'm going to jump up to verse 14, and I want to kind of give you an idea of what God tries to do through this passage. In John 3.14, he makes this statement, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What is he doing? Well, he's referring to an event that took place that was recorded in the book of Numbers. Now, if you would, back up in your Bibles to the book of Numbers and go to chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. I want to start reading there in verse 5, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 9. So just a couple of passages. Now, why is this important when it comes to either limited atonement or unlimited atonement? Why is this important? Here in the book of Numbers, the children of Israel are sinning. And it says this in verse 5 of Numbers chapter 21, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and our soul loathes this worthless bread. God gave them manna every day. Every day they would go outside their tent and they would find the manna. And every day they could gather some manna and eat for that day. Now you know as well as I that if they try to keep the manna for the next day, the manna would just rot and it would breed worms, and it would stink, and it would be ruined, and so you don't want to keep it for the next day. However, on the day before the Sabbath, you could gather twice as much, and then the next day, the manna would be perfect. It wouldn't rot. It wouldn't stink. So only on the day before the Sabbath, you could gather twice as much. So on the Sabbath, you wouldn't have to go out and gather. You could just rest, but they said what you are providing for us isn't enough. We want something different. And our soul, the very core of who we are, we loathe what you have to offer. And I'll be honest with you, that is a lot of what the world says to the bread of life, Jesus Christ. My soul loathes, God, what you have to offer. Do you mean I got to humble myself and accept Jesus's work for atonement? Can't I do it on my own? But what Jesus said there in John chapter 3 is, hey, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So the children of Israel were telling God, we don't want your bread. We think your bread is worthless. Our very soul, the core of who we are, loathes it. Verse 6 of Numbers 21 says, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Now, when you look at verse 6 and you think, oh my goodness, he sent serpents. What's the first thing that goes in your mind as you look to Scripture? Oh, wait a second. There in the Garden of Eden, there was a serpent. And the serpent was the one who deceived Eve so that she ate of the fruit. So God now sends these fiery serpents. What are the fiery serpents? I don't think these serpents are flaming, like they're actually on fire crawling around a body. I think when the serpents bit someone, that poison would flame up within them. That was the fiery serpents. You can believe what you want on this, but I'm, that's just my view. So what happens is he sent these fiery serpents among the people, 
and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Because of their sin, loathing the, the bread that God offered, people were dying. Well, therefore, verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So the people now are all, you know, I'm sorry, Lord, we're getting bit and we're dying. They go to Moses, would you take away the serpent? Take it away. Take them away. Now, interesting, Moses prays that God, okay, do what you're going to do. And so notice this. Then the Lord, verse 8, said, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So at this point, God doesn't take away the serpents. He still leaves the serpents crawling around, biting everyone. Now, as these serpents are still going around, Moses is now having to make a bronze serpent, and he puts it upon a pole. The word in the Hebrew is he puts it upon a standard. Why is that important? Well, bronze in the scripture, for those of you that understand types, bronze is a type of dealing with sin. Remember that outside the tabernacle, inside the tabernacle, all the items were of gold, but outside there was a bronze laver for the washing, and there was a bronze altar for the sacrifices. Bronze is this metal of judgment. It deals with the judgment because you put them on the bronze altar. It's the judgment of sin. It's atoning for it. You offer the sacrifices. The serpent, of course, is that what? It's that symbol of what was biting them. It's also that symbol of the enemy there in the garden. So you're dealing with the judgment of sin. That's what this symbol is. It's sin being judged. And so you have this bronze serpent, the symbol of sin being judged, set upon a standard. Not just a pole, but a standard. And why is that important? If you ever watch any of the um, old TV shows where they show like the Roman soldiers coming, they have these unique flags that they would carry with them. They would have a long pole and a small cross pole, and the flag that they would have would be in the shape of a triangle. You'd have the, the large end, and it would come down and be tied. So the two cross pieces would hold the, the larger point of the, the flag, and then the middle part that comes down would be tied to the larger pole. And this is where here... Moses is told, make this bronze serpent and put it upon a standard. In other words, put it upon a piece of wood that looks like the small letter T. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen what a small letter T looks like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> put it upon this piece of wood and, and set it upon this wood that looks like the cross. The understanding is that sin will be judged upon this wooden cross. That's why Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the, the, the serpent in the wilderness, the judgment of sin, the symbol upon that wooden standard, upon that wooden cross, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, when Moses there brought it up, he said what? Notice in verse 9, so Moses made the bronze serpent. He put it on a pole, and so was when the serpent had bitten anyone. When he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, notice that Moses didn't say, all right, only some of you can look at the serpent. 
He didn't go and blindfold others and unblindfold some and turn them there to the serpent. He said, are you guys ready? Some of you can't look. Some of you can. No, the serpent was for everyone. Now, note this. If some people looked at the serpent, not looked with believing faith, but they looked enough, they had enough faith to look, guess what God did? They were saved. Now, if there were some who said, you know what? I don't want to look at that bronze serpent but I believe God will save me. Well, guess what? He chose to save them through looking at that bronze serpent. So if you believe that God would save you and you didn't look at the bronze serpent, the bronze serpent was for everyone, but only those who chose to do what God said to do for their life would be saved. So you couldn't have someone else. And so as we look to this, I think it's important to to see here what God is, is trying to teach us there in the book of Exodus. When it comes to the Passover, all they had to do is what? Well, they sacrificed the lamb and they put the lamb there upon the doorpost. Now, amazingly, is anyone who was inside that building, whether they were a Jew or whether they were an Egyptian, if you were inside that building that had that prescribed blood, now it had to be blood of a lamb. You couldn't say it's the blood of a cow, this should work. No, it had to be a lamb. You had to go the way that God said. But anyone who was in that house, they were saved. And it wasn't just only the Jews. Now, if there was an Egyptian that was in the house, well, sorry, you're not. No, no, anyone who was there. But you had to do what? It was was recognizing this is God and this is the work. And anyone who applies this, you can be saved. And I think it's important to look to that understanding of just how incredible God is and what he chooses to do through this point of offering salvation. I'm going to give you just a couple of verses to jot down. The first is found in the book of Romans chapter 5. And what I want to do is this. I want to read in verse 10 initially, only verse 10 of Romans 5. And then I'm going to jump to verse um, 28 of chapter 11. So I'm starting out in Romans 10, 5. And then I'm going to go to chapter 11, verse 28. I'm going to read through verse 32. Why am I doing this? Well, you'll see when I read Romans um, 5, verse 10. It makes this statement. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Makes sense, right? We were all enemies. We were all sin, sinners. We, we were there with Adam's sin. We were all separated. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What does it mean? It means that his death atoned for us. That's all it's saying is his death atoned for us. And we've been realizing, yes, I understand that work of Christ. I understand that work of his death. But when you go to chapter 11, you start reading in verse 28 down to verse 32, it makes this statement concerning the gospel, speaking of the Jews, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now, these Jews that were persecuting the Christians, they said, they're our enemies. Yeah, they they are your enemies, but for the sake of what God is doing, he says, yeah, they're elect. What does that mean? 
Well, it means that we were enemies of God, and he did what? He said, even though you're an enemy, I'm going to set my love upon you and save you. And so although they're an enemy right now, understand that God wants a work. So he says they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Verse 29 of Romans 11, for the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient in God, yet now have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they may obtain mercy. For God, verse 32, has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Now, this term all is the same word that we find here in, in Hebrews you know, 2.9. And so in verse 32, he says, listen, I know they're disobedient now. I know they're enemies now, but God has a work. And he said, so listen, even now they're disobedient. And, and through this disobedience, God says, now I'm going to come to you. I'm going to draw you in. And because I've drawn you in, they're going to be jealous now, and they're going to want to come. And this is all what God does. And so in verse 32 of Romans 11, he has committed them all to disobedience. Now, when he says he's committed them all, that means that you, me, the ones that we think are friends, the ones that think we're, we were all disobedient. He committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. All of us were disobedient. He wants to bring us all in. This is that work of God. As we wonder what is God doing and why is God declaring these things? Let me share with you the very, uh, a portion of scripture in the very last chapter of the Bible. This is right at the end. And just jot it down in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. And it's so important that if you as a Christian want to memorize the scripture, this is really a good one. It opens up this, and the spirit and the bride say, come. Now, think about this for just a second. The spirit of God and the bride say, come. Let him who hears. So if you heard the spirit and the bride say, come, then you who hear it say what? Say, come. Now, now, now notice this. It says, and let him who thirsts come. Let him who desires, let him take of the waters of life freely. It doesn't say only certain ones come. It just says the spirit and the bride just blanket say, Come. Anyone who hears with the spirit and the bride, just say, come. Anyone who thirsts, let him come. Whoever desires, let him come and take freely. How incredible is this that God wants to do this work? God wants to have this heart. He wants you and I to understand what is going on. I want to take you to a parable that Jesus said, and I would like you to turn in your Bibles to the gospel of Matthew. Once you get to the Gospel of Matthew, scroll over to chapter 22. The reason this is so important is because Jesus opens up this whole portion of Scripture by literally saying, hey, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, why is that important? Well, when God says the kingdom of heaven is like, then we have to realize, oh, what's the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's like this. If he's staying, he's saying it, it's important. Now, in Matthew 22, I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 14. 
It opens up and it says, Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Now that makes sense, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. God the father said, hey, I want a bride for my son. He arranges it. He says it's here. Now it goes on to say in verse 3, and he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. So understand that there was a chosen group that he says, you are invited. And there was another chosen group that says what? You're not invited. Oh my goodness, who's invited? Well, this group initially is invited. Hang on, there's still more to this chapter. It doesn't end there. So when you have this group that was invited, and so we understand that Jesus said to the Israelites, come, 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 come and enter into this beautiful wedding. Be the bride of my son, Jesus Christ, your Messiah. They rejected it. And so we see here in verse 3 of Matthew 22, he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, Jesus sending the prophets to the nation of Israel. He sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. He's sending prophet after prophet after prophet to the nation Israel saying, come to this wedding. Verse 5, but they made light of it. They made light of it. The nation Israel made light of the work of God and the wedding through the sun. And they made light of it and they went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest, some just ignored it. But some, the rest did this. The rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Israel killed the very prophets of God that said, come to the wedding of the son. Well, in verse 7, when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, and he destroyed those murderers and burned up their cities. What is God saying? Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And thus it was. And then in verse 8, he said to his servants, the wedding's ready. Still ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. So the initial invites there to the nation Israel, they said, we don't want it. He says, okay, well, that's fine. You're not worthy. Therefore, verse 9, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. Now, notice what happens. There was this initial election of the nation of Israel. It was elect. They rejected the gift. Jesus said, I first come to the nation of Israel. I come to the lost sheep of Israel. This is where I'm going. Now, as he comes here to the lost sheep of Israel, they reject it. And then he says, now go to the highways and byways. Notice he doesn't say, wait a second, let's make more invitations. Do you understand? There is no initial secondary invitation. Now it's anyone that you find. So he says in verse 9, therefore go into the highways and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. Let them all come now. 
I've got room here in the thing. I want you to celebrate my son. So, verse 10, those servants went out into the highways and they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, this is unique and this is important. There was a question that was asked last Wednesday after the service as far as, um, you know, with salvation, you know, are you saved? Can you lose your salvation? And, and, and where in the scriptures does it say whether you can lose your salvation or not lose your salvation? Because so often what we're going to see here as we continue to go through the book of Romans, there's going to be warnings. And there's going to be warnings by saying, listen, this isn't a warning to the true believer who's accepted Jesus Christ and is abiding in him. This isn't even a warning to the non-believer who has rejected Jesus Christ and says, I don't want you, I don't want your work. But this is a warning for the make-believer. Someone who says, all right, I, I'm pretending to be a Christian, I'm, I'm doing what they're doing, but I'm not coming with this surrender to God, and I don't have this robe that God offers, the robe of righteousness. So what we see here is this. There's someone who's in this wedding who says, I want to be a part, and I'm hanging out with all these people who have been invited now in the second time. I'm hanging out with anyone who wants to come. But he sees this one person, and this one person comes to the wedding feast with this. Let me put it this way. He comes with the tattered rags of Adam. He comes with a sin nature. He doesn't come with the robe of righteousness as is given through Jesus Christ. So you can come into the church, but if you're coming in through your works, if you're coming in through your efforts, these are still what? They're unrighteousness. They're filthy rags. And we look to this and we see the heart. Now here, there were those who were initially invited. They, some said, I'll come. Others rejected it completely. And so God says, now the invitation is open to everyone, to anyone. Tell them all to come. But when you come, there's a stipulation. You have to put on the robe that's offered. You can't just come in your own clothes. You have to put in the robe that was offered. So these other ones that were destroyed, those that were initially invited, they were destroyed. The one who now comes in, in verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. All of a sudden, you have to understand that God knows that you're coming in, you, you've accepted the invitation, you are now coming in, but you can't come in on your own. You have to come in according to how God says. You can't say, I want to be saved of these fiery serpents by, by you know, killing up a serpent and making an antidote. No, you look at the bronze serpent that is there upon that cross, that is your salvation. There's only one way to come into this wedding feast. You look upon Jesus Christ, his work upon the cross, say, you are my salvation, and only that. Well, here this man was speechless, and in verse 13 of Matthew 22, then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, this is a bizarre thing. 
Because there are many who are called, but few who are chosen. So how do you deal with this issue of you know, I, I, this, this unlimited atonement where anyone who wants to can come in, the selection of anyone who desires, let them say, come. The spirit and the bride says, come. Those who hear say, come. How do you deal with that and this point of election? What happens is this, and we don't understand the full aspect of God, but it's been said by this. If you saw on this side of the door of the sanctuary, and it said this, all who desire may enter. And you think, oh, here's an invitation. Do I want to go in? Do I not want to go in? But the door says, all who desire may enter. And if you desire and you walk through the door and you turn around, it says, chosen from the foundation of the world. So you don't know that on this side, but once you enter in, you look, you say, wow, I was chosen. And this is what he says. There are many who were called, few were chosen. There's this understanding of the election of God that we don't fully understand how he chooses or what he chooses. We do know as we looked at that area of in Obadiah where we saw, you know, that, that he loved Jacob because Jacob desired the things of the spiritual. And God says, I'm going to nurture that. I'm going to bless that. I'm going to grow that. This is the heart of God. And as God begins to grow that, as God begins to move that, we begin to see this is the heart. This is what God does. God so in his grace comes, and we see here, this is his work. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit in the book of Matthew, and I'm going to go to chapter 12 for just a moment. I'm going to read two verses. The verses are important. They're verse 31 and 32 of Matthew chapter 12. Why is it important? Well, as we read it, it says this. Jesus is speaking in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, and he declares this, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. For anyone who speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Why is this important? Well, it says here, every sin... And believe that. I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Now that blows my mind. That every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven men. This means that, that every lie that anyone has ever said is forgiven. And any, any thought that you've ever thought that was wrong is forgiven. Everything is forgiven. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and what's the Holy Spirit's ministry? Well, the Holy Spirit's ministry is to do this, is to reveal Christ and his words and his work to men. If you reject that work of the Holy Spirit, the words of the Holy Spirit, to say if you reject that judgment of my sin was upon the cross, if you reject that and you don't look upon that, then this is what it says. You're not forgiven of that. That's the one sin he says is not forgiven. So when it says this, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. He says it's, it's going to be forgiven. But the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, verse 32, it will not. And so anyone who speaks a word against the Holy Spirit, 
Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, verse 32, it will be forgiven him. So when you, you know, spoke against Jesus Christ, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So in other words, there is no forgiveness apart from the work of Jesus Christ. But the invitations so beautifully and so wonderfully go to all. And this is important. Now, I'm going to give you four verses. Just jot them down. Don't turn there. I have markers in my Bible. I will be there long before you. And if you start turning there, you're going to you know, get confused. Look these up later. Listen to as I read them. The first is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 42. And why is that important? Well, Jesus himself goes to Samaria. And he goes and he meets this woman at a well. And she goes and she tells all the town, hey, you got to see this guy. Well, what we see is this. It makes this statement here in the, the gospel of John, chapter 4, beginning in verse 42. And it says, and then they said to the woman, these are the people of the town, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. We know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The Samaritans knew that the Christ would be the Savior of the world. That if anyone would come to him, they would have eternal life. And it's so important to see here the heart of God and recognize the work of God. And so, again, I want to share with you that passage in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. For in this we labor and strive because we've fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. He's the Savior of all men. I want to give you two more verses, and they're found in the epistle of 1 John. The first verse I want to give you is chapter 2, verse 2. The second is chapter 4, verse 14. The reason is this. In chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 John, it makes this statement, and he himself is the propitiation, in other words, the satisfaction, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. If he's a satisfaction for our sins, praise God for that. We know that. But then it says, but he's not just the satisfaction of our sins, but also for the whole world. This again talks about this unlimited atonement. The only thing that can't be atoned for is this. If you reject that work of Jesus Christ and his judgment of sin, his paying for my sin, his paying for your sin upon the cross. If you reject that, there's no forgiveness for that. God says everything else is forgiven, but that, if you reject my son, if you reject him, there is no forgiveness. So come into this wedding, but come with what? The robe of righteousness is supplied by Jesus Christ. The other is this. I want to share with you in 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. And it makes this statement. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Now, this is important, and I think it's important for us to, to recognize and to grab a hold of. 
Now, why am I spending time on this? Well, the whole key is what? Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit of the bride says, come. All who hear them say, come. Come, come. The invitation is open to all. If you have this mindset that the invitation is only for a select few, if you're looking to that view, then what it is is you have no desire to tell someone Jesus died for your sins. Because if the atonement is only limited, if the atonement is only for me or for the elect, then I would be lying to them to say, Jesus died for your sins. And how important is that, that you can go to anyone in your family and say, Jesus died for your sins. You can go to anyone in your workplace and say, Jesus died for your sins. You can go anywhere to anyone and say, Jesus died for your sins. You don't have to say, God, are they the elector or are they not? Because I can't tell them that they're saved. He died for their sins if he didn't, because I would be a liar. And we know liars go to hell, right? And so you, you can't do that. You can't, you can't. Sorry, sister. It was just so funny. Um, and so we, we, we look to this and we see here that, that heart of God. And, and it's so important for, for that. Now, I'm going to give you just a little bit of church history. And the church history is this. If you are familiar with how the early church was, there is where this whole thing of the five points of Calvinism were actually made in this setting called the Synod of Dort, D-O-R-D-T. Now, now, now that synod was from Dortrecht, Netherlands. Now, what happens is this. So there were two groups that were there in the Netherlands, and there was a group of reformers who did and, and followed the, this work of the Armenianisms. And, and so of, of, of um, Armenius. And so they were called the Armenianists, and so they followed his doctrine. And that doctrine was of, one of it was, it was an unlimited atonement that Jesus died for the world. That's what they were saying. Well, there was another group, and these people followed the works of John Calvin. And so they were saying, no, we, we disagree with your theology that he didn't die for the whole world, that he only died for the elect. And so they said, it's not unlimited atonement, it's only limited atonement. Now, what's amazing is this. Within that council, there were these two groups that were there, and they began to dispute so heavily that both sides became militarized. They were ready to start a war over, I believe this. Why am I sharing this? Remember when I first started and I said, whether you believe in limited atonement or unlimited atonement, you are a Christian. This is not something to go to war over, folks. But it is something that, depending upon what you believe, is going to be how you share the gospel and to whom you share the gospel. And I want to share the gospel with everyone. I want to tell them God loves you and he died for you. And if you accept his work, you will go to heaven. And I want to be able to say that to anyone. And so we see here that within this, this, this synod of Dort, the synod itself took place in 1618. Now, why is that important? Well, what's crazy is this, is um, John Calvin actually died on May 27th in 1564, 54 years before the synod of Dort. 
So those people who were followers of Calvin just took certain things that Calvin said and were saying, we're going to stand on this, we're going to stand on this, and we're going to stand on this, and we're going to reject what he said on this, but we're going to make this statement. It wasn't Calvin who wrote Tulip. It was the people who followed Calvin who wrote Tulip. Why is that important? How many people will, will follow a certain ism and they're going to pick and choose what they really want? Now, within the end of this, they had this synod of Dort, and what happened was this, is the, the ones who followed the work of John Calvin rejected all of the works of Armenianism, rejected them all, and no, no, what we're going to do is this. Now, when the Armenians came, they had five points, and so the Calvinists said, well, we're going to make five points too. And so they made these five points in refutation to the Armenianism, and they made the tulip. And so as they make their five points of Calvinism, now all of a sudden we see here that it was in response to say, we're rejecting everything that these Armenians said. Now they were ready to go to war. Now what happens is this, they actually beheaded the leader of the Armenians. Now talk about Christian love. <laughs> you know, think about this. When, when we disagree in doctrine, when we disagree in something as far as atonement, which is unlimited or atonement that is limited, is it important to slay them? Is it important to kill them? Is it important to behead them? Is it important to make war? No, it's not. I'll be very honest with you. It's not important to make war, but it is important for you to know what you believe and why. And, and what's important is this, that if you have a belief of limited atonement, then what you have to do is this. You have to look to every single verse that I've read today and erase it from your Bible or to say that it doesn't mean what it says. I cannot tell you how many Calvinists will look at this passage here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 and says that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone, but it's not what it means. Well, if it's not what it means, then why didn't he say what he meant? God is big enough to say what he means. And if he said this, my thought is he probably meant it. And if he meant to say something different, God would have said something different. And so we look to this, and I think it's important for us to, to recognize here what God is trying to tell us. Now, I want to read to you a portion of John Calvin's commentary. I'm going to read you a portion of his commentary, word for word. Now, in his commentary, this is the commentary on John, volume one. He had a couple of volumes, but I want to read to you this one portion as he, he John Calvin, is writing a commentary here on John 3.16. It says this, John Calvin is speak, or declaring this, that whoever believeth on him may not perish. He goes on to say, it's remarkable commendation of faith. That it frees us from everlasting destruction. For he intended expressly to state, though we appear to have been born in death, undoubted deliverance is offered to us by the faith of Christ. Therefore, that we ought to not fear death, which otherwise hangs over us. And he has employed the universal term, whomsoever. John Calvin, in writing his, says, 
here the Holy Spirit is saying of Jesus, he said, whosoever, both to invite all indiscriminately to partake of life. John is saying this invitation of whosoever is to to invite all indiscriminately to partake of life. In other words, just go to the highways and byways and invite them all. And so we see here, he says, he invites all indiscriminately to partake of life and to cut off every excuse from unbelievers. Such is also the import of the term world, which he formally used for through nothing will be found the, in the world that is unworthy. Well, nothing is found in the world that is worthy of the favor of God, yet he shows himself to be reconciled to the whole world when he invites all men without exception to the faith of Christ, which is nothing else than an entrance into life. Now, if you think about John Calvin as saying this invitation is indiscriminately given to all, then you would think that the Calvinists would not listen to those who were the disciples of John Calvin, but they would actually listen to the words of John Calvin themselves. And they would say that the atonement is unlimited. But they don't. There was a certain group, and there was these men and men arguing among themselves. And it's important for us. And this is why I wanted to to pause on this, because there is in the church a a new, I want to say it's it's an old work, but it's beginning to gain steam again. And within the work, there's this work that's going towards what we call the Reformed theology or the Calvinist theology. And part of what it is, is that you take a look at this one doctrine and if you want to say it's only limited atonement, then what happens is this. Don't go to the ism. Don't go to Calvinism. Don't even go to Arminianism. Go to the scripture and believe what the scripture says and know this, that if someone wants to believe something different, they're not enemies. You don't have to behead them. You don't have to go to war. We don't have to militarize ourselves against the reformed church. You don't have to do that. What do we do? We love them. Just love them. And we love them, and, and hopefully they will come and love us. And, and if they choose not to, it doesn't stop the fact that what? We just don't need to love them. Because God says what? Love your enemies. <laughs> they want to be our enemy. We can still love them. This is the heart of God. And so it's important to see here that, that Jesus, he went, and it declares back in Hebrews 2 verse 9, he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. He tasted death. Now, what does it mean that he tasted death? Now, I want to back up a little bit on this this passage and and look to this. It says, but we see Jesus, who's made a little lower than the angels. So Jesus, who was God, humbled himself and became flesh. As a man, he that humbles himself becomes a servant. As a servant, he humbles himself to the death of the cross. And this is important. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. In other words, the eternal God became incarnate. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The son that was eternal now comes as a man. Now when this son comes as a man, what's important to see is this, that as he now comes, he was made a little lower than the angels. He comes as a man for the suffering of death. 
He came, and understand this, he didn't come simply to die. Because if he came to die, he could have what? He could have just died of old age, right? He could have died of anything. But he had to suffer and die. He had to literally have his body ripped apart. And that was his suffering. And then he had to be nailed to the cross. Understand, in the same way as that bronze serpent had to be set upon the standard, the judgment of sin had to be set upon that wooden cross there in the wilderness when the children of Israel said, our soul loathes what you have to offer. God offers his son. He offers salvation only through his son. You need to come to the wedding feast, and everyone's invited. The spirit and the bride says, come. All who hear say, come. We all say, come. But when you come, you have to come through what? You have to come through the work of Christ. You cannot come another way. There is salvation in no other name, salvation in no other work. All who come to the Father must come through the Son. And when you come through the sun, guess what you get? You get this wedding robe. You get this robe of righteousness that he gives to you. And what this robe of righteousness does is it removes the tattered rags of, of Adam and it puts on this shining, brilliant, flawless, sinless robe of righteousness. And that's what we now bring into this wedding feast. And we tell anyone else, hey, if you want to come to this feast, come. But you have to wear the robe. You've got to have the robe. You've got to come through Jesus Christ. Celebrate this marriage to the Son. As we look to this, it's important to see that Jesus had to suffer death. He suffered and died. And that's why when we come to this table of communion, we realize here that his body was broken. His blood was shed. He didn't just die of old age. He had to die upon the cross. He had to suffer in the flesh. He had to suffer in the spirit so that you and I would never have to suffer. That we could all have eternal life. And that in the flesh that we could, as God opens up this area of just his work and faith to say, I can heal you of diseases. I can heal you of things that are going on. God has that ability. He's done it before. He'll do it again. And so we see here that when it's so important that when, when Jesus came and he would meet with his disciples there in that upper room, that he would open up and he would take this bread and he would say, this is my body, which is broken for you. So he'd break it and he'd bless it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. And he would make this statement, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So when you take this communion, he doesn't say when you eat this communion, just do it in remembrance of your sins. That's not it. He says, you do this in remembrance of me upon the cross. You do this in remembrance of me. And then also, likewise, after supper, he took this cup. And within that cup, he makes this statement. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we see his body is broken. His blood is shed. But with his broken body and the shed blood, he says, do this in remembrance of me. You're doing it in 
You're looking to me. You're looking to this victory because he makes this statement, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You're proclaiming, it says you're preaching, you're evangelizing, you're preaching victory. Every time you come to this table, you are proclaiming victory. Now, victory over what? Victory over sin, he died for it. You're also declaring victory over my sin. He died for me. And as you come to this table, as you see this, I think it's so important. You need to know that he suffered and he died. It wasn't just dying. He suffered. He literally would go to the Lord and say, Lord, if there's any way, any, any possible way for this cup to pass for me, let it pass. And nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. If, if you can't allow me and, and them to come into a right relationship other than my death, my suffering, then I'll go through this. And how incredible is it that we have to remember that he died and he suffered. Now, he died so that what? So that we wouldn't have to. He died so that we would have life. And, and I think it's remembering that, that yeah, he, he died. And not only that he died, but I think it's important to remember how he died. Now, he died in suffering, but mark this, he died willingly. He willingly suffered. He willingly went to the cross. He willingly, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the fact that you and I coming into this right relationship, he said, I'm going to do this for you. And I think it's so important to remember that he had to die so that we wouldn't. He died and he suffered so that we could have this joy with God. He took on the suffering so that we wouldn't have to. He went there willingly. And understand that when he died, and this is so important, he died completely. He said this, it is finished. He breathed his last and he died. And he went as someone who died into the grave. He went to someone who died there into the tomb. And then three days later, he rose again victorious over sin. And so we see here that this, this death that he did, and I think it's, it's so important that when he died, he died with you and I in mind. It was joyfully, for the joy that was set before him. And when you come to his death, you can either say this, I'm coming mourning because of my sin, or you can come celebrating because of his victory over my sin. Keep in mind that the table is not a table of mourning. The table is a table of celebration. Because he doesn't say, do this in remembrance of your sin. Do this in remembrance of your wretchedness. Do this in remembrance of your faults and flaws. He said, do this in remembrance of me. That I came and willingly, joyfully, completely died for your sins. I suffered so that you could have joy. And this is where I love how, you know, Hebrews puts it. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Do you come to this table saying, oh, Jesus, I'm so horrible, your work isn't enough? Or do you come to this table and you partake it in such a way that you're saying, Lord, you are crowned with glory and honor. You alone did this work to take away all my sins. You said it was finished. I believe you. I'm celebrating you suffering. 
Not that I, I would want you to suffer, but I know that you had to suffer. That's how much you love me. It's one of those things to say, I will give of myself without any pain involved. How much love does that take? It doesn't take a lot. But to say, listen, I will give my life. Now that's love. Greater love hath any man that he would lay down his life for his friends. And we see this work within it. And I think it's so important that as we come to this table, it's celebrating God. It's celebrating who he is. It's celebrating saying, I have come to recognize your work. And as I come and celebrate what you have done in my life, I want to go and I want to testify, I'm going to say this again, to everyone in the world. God loves you. And Jesus Christ died for you. And if you receive this gift, then you too can come to this wedding feast forever and ever and ever as he gives to you this robe of righteousness as you look to his finished work on the cross. May that be our heart to tell the world the spirit and the bride say, come. Let those who hear say, come. And, and I'll tell you what, what a glorious thing when that becomes our heart to go to the world that is lost in it's dead in its sins and say, come and receive life. Come and receive this gift. Receive the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, Father, we do thank you for your heart, for your work, for your grace. And, and Lord, I am so thankful that you bid me to come. I'm so thankful that, that us here, you bid us to come. And we come willingly. We come joyfully. We come excited because you have done the work that you have paid the price, that you have suffered death. And the suffering of death, as, as the, the scriptures praise that you're crowned with glory and honor, and we do want to crown you with this glory and honor. We want to proclaim your worth, the work of your, your death, and its worth, Lord. We want to proclaim victory until you come. And so, Father, draw us into this grace. Draw us into this celebration. Draw us into the joy of celebrating you. Oh, we ask this in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, amen. amen.